You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name is Drew Cleveland, and I serve here as the Director of Discipleship and Adult Formation Um, It's good to be with you this morning to bring you God's Word. For those that are new, we're uh, in the middle of a sermon series on Jesus' farewell discourse from the Gospel of John. And last week, Corey illuminated the Trinity and our life in the Spirit through whom Jesus promises to always be with us. Today's text marks an important transition, though, from Jesus comforting the disciples' troubled hearts to preparing them for the work of mission. And in this pivot, he gives us an enduring image to ground us in an essential truth that apart from life on the vine, we can do nothing, but that in the vine, we have everything we'd ever need. So please get out your your Bibles or your Bible apps and let's hear God's word from John 15, one through eight. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more fruit. If you you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." The word of the Lord. So a few months ago, I'm driving around town in between meetings, and I hear the Lord say, I miss you. And it wasn't an audible voice, just kind of a resonance in my spirit. And without much hesitation, I said, I miss you too. Now, I think most of us have felt far from God at some point. Maybe you even do this morning. Uh, Distant from his presence, like a Zoom conversation where God's always on mute. And as some of you know, since last fall, I've been struggling with uh, back pain and uh, fully herniated disc, L4, L5. If you know, you know, and I feel your pain, literally. Um, And also, I just want to say thank you for all that have shown me um, support and care. I just feel loved by this congregation. Um, And by back pain, I do mean I was laid out on the floor, chipper had to pull me up off the ground one day. I had the walker phase. I had a cane phase, epidurals. I'm actually scheduled for surgery this Thursday, or this Tuesday. Um, so the, the pain hindered me, though, from many life-giving activities like vigorous exercise and hiking, but also a couple of key spiritual practices as well, like starting my day off on my knees in prayer or sitting in this really comfy chair and having daily silence or getting out into creation on Friday afternoons to swim in the James or swing a golf club or hike some trail. These were the places that I would turn my heart towards God, where I would attempt to abide, uh, 
These were the habits of presence-seeking, and they were disturbed. Jesus noticed, and he missed me. Which, by the way, is a crazy thought that the God of the universe actually misses us. And I wonder if in the busy rush of this noisy life, or a season of trial or loss or doubt, might God be missing you too? And if so, I hope this morning that the, the promise of today's text would give you hope. So let's jump in. Uh, Jesus is, is with his closest circle of disciples, hours before his death, teaching them on essential truths around the nature of God and his love, preparing them for life in the kingdom and mission. They would have been making, soon be making their way out of the city and across the Kidron Valley. They would have been going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they were going, olive trees and vineyards would have scattered the green-brown hills around them. And Jesus begins with his final I am statement. I am the vine, the true vine. And the disciples would have understood the weight of this claim, for only the true God of Israel claims to call himself I am. And it is God's covenant people, Israel, that were known as the vine or the vineyard. This is imagery found throughout the prophets and the Psalms. They were called to be a covenant people of God, that they would bless all nations through the fruits of their righteousness. But they failed. By saying that he is the true vine, he is saying that he is both the true God and the true fulfillment of God's covenant people and purpose that he is the righteous fulfillment of God's redemptive mission to reconcile all things and all nations and peoples. Jesus then continues to paint a picture of, of, of a garden and gardeners, branches, burn piles, fruit, and glory. He gives us vivid imagery of our life with God. The roles are clear. Jesus is the vine. The Father is the gardener. We are the branches. And although the text does not explicitly say this, we can imagine that the Holy Spirit is the sap that connects us to the life in the vine. Jesus also describes patterns of action. To bear fruit, to remain, to be pruned, to bear more fruit, all for God's glory. Or, alternatively, we can separate ourselves from the vine, wither, dry up, and burn out. But the key action here for us is to abide, is to remain. Remain in me, he says. Translations also use abide, which is a very spiritual sounding word, abide. And what does that mean? You know, Corey often uh, talks about being known and, and being and belonging and finding our heart's true home. And I think, I think this is akin to abiding, that when you think of abide, you think of abode to dwell, to live in, to stay. To abide means to make our home in something. Now, remember those, uh, those cross-stitch pillows or, or frame pictures with scrawled with the old aphorism, home is where the heart is. We can take that one step further and say that where the heart makes its home shapes who you are and who you will become. And that Greek word here uh, for abide, meno, is, is fascinating. Um, and that it's a verb, yes. Um, it's a call to action, yes. But it's, it's tense is hard to peg down. It's associated action is difficult to describe. Uh, for instance, uh, we'll take this water bottle. Meno. 
stay. The bottle is remaining right there, but is it doing anything? Is it abiding? This word abide captures so much of the dynamic tension of the Christian life. It is a word that speaks to our being and our doing. But unlike this inanimate object, we living creatures are actually doing something when we abide. As abiding branches, we are actively receiving life from the vine. So when Jesus calls us to remain in him, he is asking us to be an active presence with him. You know when you're at home, probably on your phone, and your spouse um, says, hey, you're here, but you're not here, here. We know what they mean. We are physically present, but maybe not actively present. And why is Jesus even emphasizing this at this point, to be here, to be present? He uses the word almost eight, to- or eight times in this section. And as I've said, John 15 marks the transition from Jesus comforting the disciples with the knowledge of the Spirit to preparing them for life and mission. But first, he knows that their hearts, as well as ours, need to be rooted and grounded in love and his love alone, not some grand task or newfound power. Think about it. If Jesus had gone from telling them about the Holy Spirit as a helper right into the command to love and to go out into the world to serve them, we would be tempted to live under the weight of works. Jesus instead invites us to remain in his love, for this is the first and primary task of our discipleship. Too often we forget the command to abide. We start to think that we are somehow responsible for doing what God alone can produce. But verse 4 tells us that no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. We branches remain, receive. We receive the love and life of the vine. The fruit will come. Now, when you imagine the fruitful life, what comes to mind? Perhaps the fruits of hard labors, the good life, a God-fearing family, a home, a healthy, uh, good health, a growing portfolio, secure retirement, perhaps the legacy of grandchildren. Or perhaps you're more pious and you imagine a life of service, volunteering and fighting for a good cause, of serving the church or funding a global missionary endeavor. And friends, all of these things are good things. But are they what Jesus is talking about here? For fruit bearing is not about maximizing religious productivity through our good works, nor achieving the good life through hard work. For if fruitfulness is the outcome of our righteousness alone, then there's a big problem. For who is righteous? Romans tells us, no one. No, not even one. Only Christ is truly righteous. But when we abide in Christ, we clothe ourselves in Christ, we receive his righteousness, we, in the words of Paul, are filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God the Father. 
True fruitfulness, then, is Christ-like character grown out of our active presence with Jesus. Any kind of fruit that is, uh, the, the kind of fruit that's produced is determined by the kind of tree that it's connected to. So our character should also taste and smell and uh, feel and satisfy like Jesus. Fruit is the evidence of spending time with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and having been grafted into the life of God, we bear the fruit of love and thus play a humble role in his grand story of redemption, simply by abiding. This is good news. Why? Because anyone can do it, anytime, anywhere. You don't need a special skill set or knowledge, just a willing and surrendered heart. And from those places of ordinary surrender, God often sends us out into extraordinary mission. But we know that being with and becoming like Jesus in our world comes at a cost. For he says that every branch that does bear fruit, he will prune. Why? So that it will become more fruitful. Pruning, in a literal sense, is, is just the purposeful cutting away of dead overgrowth, you know, branches to encourage fruitfulness. I was doing it in a garden yesterday, lopping up a tree. Um, and I, but I'm wondering, why would God cut off fruitful branches? That didn't make sense. Uh, and I wanted to know, so I asked a gardener. And uh, last week, we have some pictures up, but uh, we went out as a staff to Don and Holly Smith's orchard. And um, Don told me this, this perfect story that he planted his grapevines in such a way to allow the branches to spread really wide, to bear lots of fruit. But a more seasoned vine dresser actually told him that that wouldn't work. For fruit far from the vine lacks the right kind of nutrients and sugar content to actually make good wine. So he had to prune fruitful branches. You see, the closer to the vine, the sweeter the grape, the better the wine. Friends, I suspect that we modern people may struggle with too much rather than too little that we live busy lives in full houses with full schedules and full plates, yet too often feel disconnected from the true life. We perhaps ought to consider if a kind of abundance is a greater threat to our fruitfulness than scarcity. Our lives can become bent and tangled under the branches, weighed down even by good things. So pruning is a gift, but it often feels like deep loss or punishment. We are so tempted to believe that if God strips away good things from our lives, that we must have done something wrong, or worse, that, that God himself is evil. We experience pruning as loss, mainly because when God is removing or withholding something, that we are tempted to put our identity in. We're tempted to make our home in someone other than Christ. In our text, to prune means to clean, to remove that which hinders. For Jesus, pruning is a function of abiding, and abiding is being at home at something. So pruning is like cleaning up the house to make room for in our hearts. Pruning removes anything that hinders us from a flourishing life in Christ. It indeed shocks the plant, but it redirects it to what's essential, 
And friends, hear me. Pruning is not a punishment. It is not pointless. And not all suffering is pruning. There is a difference between God's purposeful pruning and the chaotic, painful reality of simply living in a broken world with broken people. God does not use senseless violence or disease to teach us life lessons. For what gardener would give his plants disease or burn his flowers in full bloom? No, God, our God of grace, works all things for your good in the midst of suffering, disease, and disaster, but he is not their author. But let's be real here. Pruning is ugly. Where are my gardeners at? (laughs) You know, those stubby little branches on your roses. Uh, It's awkward. It's painful looking, but it's necessary. And at third, I actually don't think a congregation full of high achievers and hard workers, we don't uh, lack the ability to grasp the concept of pruning as a principle. No pain, no gain. Uh, delayed gratification leads to, to increased success. We uh, will make sacrifices for a future goal. So I don't think we uh, struggle in this regard. We get it in principle. I just think we want to be the one in control of the pruning. We want to be the gardener. Why? Because if we're not the gardener, then we have to be willing to surrender to the true gardener. This means an utter dependence upon God, a limiting of our freedom. And in our self-reliant, independent, and individualistic culture, we rebel against this with every fiber of our being. People don't tend to fear change, they fear loss. And a season of pruning there is often a painful sense of loss. So out of fear, we cling to anything that will give us a sense of security and control, even if it separates us further from the vine. And in the Christian tradition, we have a term for anything that separates us from the love and life of God. We call it sin. And sin, my friends, leads to death. Friends, I am a sinner. I have unruly and dead branches that need to be pruned so that I am redirected towards total dependence upon Jesus to guide my wandering heart back to its true home, to prune away even the good things that I have made into ultimate things. We call those idols. His pruning shears are an act of kindness, stripping away my selfish desires and false self. God is literally cutting death out of our lives. What tangled branches of your heart may need to be pruned so that you experience the newness of life in Christ? Do you trust the Father to do it? Do you trust that he is a good gardener? Listen to how the Lord reveals himself through the prophet Isaiah and reveals his heart. Sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually and guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. I love that imagery. This is the heart of our Father. 
the one who tends the vine and prunes our branches. He is our fierce protector and our loving active presence. He is ever walking the wild landscapes of our hearts, gardening, pruning, tending, shaping, but not in anger. He's singing. He is the tender gardener of your soul, even as he prunes the briars and thorns. Friends, fruit does not grow because the branches work harder. And remember the, the, the promise of pruning, it's so that we bear more fruit. It's not about us. We don't have that power. And praise God, we'd misuse it. Our, remember, our primary task as disciples is to abide and trust. Jesus just said straight up, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. We are just to actively remain and be present. Even if the gardener cuts you deeply, you can trust him. Now look, Jesus is also just instructing his disciples that very night on how to remain, where a mere few hours later in the garden, they're going to abandon him. Jesus knows that we fail. So he promises to remain in us. So this morning, if you're feeling like you're missing God, or God is missing you, hear this. Abide in me is your invitation, but I abide in you is his promise. It is in the power of his presence that we have the promise of joy. He is always with you, and it is in the vine and the vineyard of his keeping that our hearts find their true home. The message today is simply this. Just as he, has called, just as he called his first disciples, he calls you now to an act to be actively present with him this week, to remain in his love, and then just see what he'll do through you to love a broken world. Friends, today is Communion Sunday, and this is a perfect extension of Jesus' imagery. For just as the fruit of the vine was pruned, pressed, and transformed into wine, and just as the wheat was threshed and pressed or transformed into wine or to bread, excuse me. Uh, likewise, Christ was crushed, crucified, and conquered death so that we may have life. So as we come to this table, let us lift up our hearts, receive his life, and abide in his love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your presence and for the honor of joining you in your mission to love the world. Help us to abide in your love and your love alone, and to receive your life so that we may bear the fruit of your spirit and love our neighbors as you do. Amen.